This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hi everyone and uh, good afternoon and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, my name is Pippa Goldschmidt and I'm going to be your chair for this afternoon's event, Putting the Cult into Culture. Uh, and this event has been sponsored by the Wellcome Trust. And our speakers today are Jennifer Roan on my left, uh, who is a biologist and author of the novels Experimental Heart and The Honest Look, as well as being the founder of the website lablet.com. And on my right is Neil Stevenson, best-selling author of uh, SF classics such as Snow Crash, as well as Cryptonomicon and Anathem, and his recent book of essays, Some Remarks. So what we're going to do this afternoon, we're going to have a discussion about the interaction between science fiction and science facts. And we're going to talk about the nature of, sort of science fiction, whether it has anything interesting to say about, uh, about science itself, how it impacts on science, how it impacts on society as a large, at large, maybe. Um, and the way that, that the format that we're going to have is I'm going to ask both Jennifer and Neil to, uh, to talk about their views on the subject, and then we're going to open it up to you, the audience. Okay, so um, Jennifer, shall I kick off with you? Sure. <laughs> well, I've always been an avid reader of science fiction, starting from when I was a small child, and I just devoured it and loved it. And when I went to graduate school in Seattle to become a scientist, I got past this, this paperback book, it was all beat up and thumbed through, and it had all these um, paragraphs underlined. And I opened it up and I realized that the underlined paragraphs were explicit paragraphs about biochemistry. <laughs> and, and it was this book about, it was a, a realistic novel about scientists. And it's called Cantor's Dilemma by Carl Gerasi, who was the scientist himself. And I thought, I've never read a mainstream novel where the scientist is a central character doing science as part of the plot, and it took place in the lab. And I was blown away by the idea that you could actually read a book about real life that had a scientist in it. And I thought, this is really strange. Why haven't I seen this before? So I went out to the bookshop, and I started looking in the library, and I, and I hit a brick wall because there were hardly any books about scientists out there. And most of the best portrayals of scientists that you can read in fiction are in hard science fiction. I thought, this is really strange. So I set up a website called lablet.com to sort of highlight the fact that where are all the scientists in our, our sort of trade fiction, our, our non-genre sort of literary fiction or whatever you want to call it. And it was great uh, to sort of, as a thought of experiment, I never thought this genre would become really popular, lablet. You wouldn't go into a bookshop and find the lablet section. But you know, when I ended up counting the number of novels out there that had scientists in them, it was about 120 ever written. <laughs> ever written 120 novels about scientists as central characters doing science. That is really, really scary considering how central science is to our lives and how many you know, tens of thousands of scientists are out there. They're amongst us, even, even out here there's probably some lurking around. There's lots of scientists. It's a really, really interesting topic to write a work of fiction about. And there just aren't any. I mean, Neil Stevenson has written a few. He's written Zodiac, which is about a chemist bit of an odd chemist, but uh, he's a realistic chemist. And every, sci every scientific thing in that book could have happened. It's plausible by today's standards of science. It's nothing supernatural, no aliens. It's just a, it's a really lovely book about a scientist. And he's written some historical lablet, of course, Cryptonomicon, the, the Baroque Cycle. These are all stories about scientists thinking about science. And 
it's, it's, it's boggling to my mind and probably to yours now that I pointed it out. Where are they? Where are all the scientist characters? So I think it's important, personally, to have more scientists in fiction because um, fiction is a great way to draw you into a world you know nothing about. It's a great way to learn lots of geeky things you didn't even think you wanted to know. Um, and it's a really good way to sort of humanize science because in today's society, science is a little bit distrusted and the scientists as messengers are not trusted either. So if we say to you, you know, if we keep burning all this fossil fuel, we might get some problems with the, you know, floods and climate change and people says, well, that's what you think. That's your opinion. <laughs> but is it true? So the messengers are not trusted and maybe it's because they're a little bit afraid of science or they didn't know anything about it or it was something scary they avoided at school. So I think that fiction is a really great way to, to humanize science, to sort of show people, not in an educational, boring way, but in sort of an exciting way, what science is like, what it's like to do science. The scientists are human beings, they have foibles. The scientific process is not this thing you learned at school, which is you know, hypothesis, discovery, eureka, Nobel Prize. It doesn't work like that. It's really, really messy and it's a scrum and it goes back and forth and scientists fight about their ideas. And if, if you can write a novel that encapsulates that excitement and that messiness and that geekiness, and, and, and sort of how it really is, I think it could really do a lot for the PR of science and, their, and the message of science. So when I write my books about scientists, I just like to, to play a little with it. I, I don't necessarily write the truth because it's fiction, so I make stuff up. I make up imaginary diseases or imaginary genes, but I don't violate the laws of physics. I, I like to explore science and, and to sort of look at things from different angles, but I, I don't mind making things up because it is fiction. That makes some people uncomfortable. But I think, uh, in general, it's a good idea to have more scientists in fiction, and if you agree with me, you should go out and lobby your, <laughs> lobby your publishers and to, to give us more science because it's a really interesting thing to read about, and I think it's important. Okay, thanks, Jennifer. And I'll pass over to you, Neil, uh, for your views on the subject. Uh, I'm, I'm going to end up talking maybe a little bit more about about technology than, than lab science per se, but uh, my observation is that when um, when Snow Crash uh, became a, a somewhat widely read book, I, I a few years later occasionally would hear from from engineers um, in the tech industry who were uh, who, who claimed to be working on trying to actually implement uh, some of the sort of proposed future technologies that were that were described in that book. Uh, and I got quite a bit more in that vein um, after uh, the, the next novel, which is the, the Diamond Age, was, was published. Uh, Diamond Age contains a lot of, of detailed ideas about, uh, about future applications of, of nanotech. So um, the, uh, uh, the, the gist of, of what I was hearing from these people uh, seemed to be that um, uh, a uh, a science fiction novel could serve as a, an actually kind of useful tool to people who are developing technology in the sense that, um, and, and, and now we're going to move uh, sort of into my interpretation of, of, of what I heard uh, as opposed to what I was told. But my interpretation is that if you're doing uh, engineering in the context of a large organization, um, chances are that you're sitting in a cubicle all day long focusing on a pretty narrow uh, part of the, the, the problem. And um, 
when you're doing that, it can be easy to sort of lose your grip on what the, the big picture is. And uh, if, if that happens a lot, it can actually be a problem for a big development organization because you get people kind of wandering off in different directions. And so uh, in managing those organizations, um, a lot of effort seems to go into keeping everyone pointed in the same direction. There's sort of a lot of sitting in meetings and, and watching PowerPoint presentations uh, whose purpose is to, to uh, communicate uh, what, the, what the goal is and keep everybody kind of nicely coordinated. And um, that, uh, those, the, the, that way of spending one's time is not popular uh, among, among people who, whose job it is to do sort of interesting creative work. And there's a lot of complaining about the time that's spent in meetings and, and in either watching uh, PowerPoint presentations or, um, or having to prepare uh, presentations that nobody really wants to see and that uh, tend to be forgotten um, as soon as they're delivered. So um, the, the, the theory that emerges from this is that um, uh, science fiction might actually have a kind of practical utility for a, such an organization in the sense that um, uh, if, if everyone is sharing a, a, a reasonably well-rendered and coherent picture of the, the future that you're trying to build uh, as depicted in a, a, a well-written story, that um, uh, then everyone will kind of work together uh, towards that goal uh, in, in a manner that doesn't involve lots of, of micromanaging and, and cajoling. Uh, from the from the top down, it becomes more of a bottom up kind of, of proposition. So, th that's a uh, a suspicion. Let, let's say that I've been harboring for a while, and um, uh, at the beginning of of 2011, I made the mistake of, of voicing these opinions uh, at a conference, uh, future tense conference. It was so uh, so it was called in uh, in Washington D.C. Sort of co organized by Slate Magazine and the New America Foundation, which uh, seemed like an alarming name for a foundation when I heard it, but it's actually a very uh, sort of politically balanced, middle-of-the-road kind of think tank um, and, uh, and the Arizona State University. And, um, the, uh, uh, and, and people sort of reacted in a kind of vigorous and positive way to this idea, and um, the, the 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 proposal emerged that uh, maybe it was time for science fiction writers to sort of uh, get off of, of our butts and start writing something a little more positive and, and a little more encouraging, uh, rather than the kind of gloomy dystopian uh, material that's become kind of obligatory uh, if if you want to be taken seriously as a hip, cool, jaded mirror shades wearing uh, post-cyberpunk uh, science fiction writer. So uh, uh, as, as Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State, said to me, you're the ones who've been slacking off, uh, <laughs> meaning, meaning science fiction writers. Uh, the engineers and scientists were ready to go, and we, we haven't been pulling our weight. So um, the... Um, uh, so out of this has emerged an actual project, uh, which is still taking shape, still being organized, called Hieroglyph. Uh, the purpose of which is to get a number of science fiction writers to write 
uh, stories in a somewhat more positive and constructive vein without going back to the kind of blind naivete that we associate with with some older science fiction uh, and 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 collaborate with some uh, uh, actual scientists and technologists and, and students um, uh, in in sort of exploring those ideas and and perhaps trying to uh, to, to realize them. Okay, thanks, Neil. Um, so just to sort of spark the discussion off between the two of you, I've I've noticed that you you both have a kind of a sort of, you, you sort of a utopian view of what science fiction could do in a, in a way. You, you seem to see it as a, as a sort of PR or educational tool to sort of present the best face of scientists. And now you're sort of going along with this uh, thesis that, that we should be writing sort of positively about scientists. Uh, do you think there's any kind of danger that, about that? It's about science fiction just being seen as a sort of uh, mouthpiece for all these uh, dastardly scientists? <laughs> no, I, I don't, didn't mean to give that impression. <laughs> there is a lot of really depressing lablet out there. It, it's showing that science is a human endeavor, so it's good, bad, and ugly. Mm -hmm. And I think that's valuable because a lot of people either see science as the villain or bad, or as this utopian white-coated saint thing. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is, is neither. Mm -hmm. And I think if you just look at science in a realistic way, it will help you understand a lot of the, the debates that are happening mm -hmm. out there. It's not black and white. Scientists do disagree with one another without injuring the whole premise. You know, when climate scientists argue about the details of climate science, your average person who doesn't know how science works might think, oh, even the scientists don't agree. It can't be right. Mm -hmm. Whereas science is actually built on <laughs> serious argy-bargy. I mean, we're always fighting and, and, and slagging each other off at conferences, politely, of course. And I think if people knew that's how science worked, that it, it can be ugly and competitive, and, but it's still trying to do good. Mm -hmm. I think that would help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 what seems to have happened is, is that there was a period, uh, I think of it as being sort of 50s, 60s, of, of extreme techno-optimism and, and sort of blindness to, to consequences um, that, that led to uh, some, some kind of well-known uh, uh, environmental disasters, let's say, so DDT and, uh, and some of the, the problems with nuclear waste. Um, and um, you know, I, 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 won't, I won't sort of go down the list because uh, we all know it pretty well. Uh, and, and that, I think, prompted a backlash that has maybe outlived its, its usefulness. So uh, it's become a, a kind of reflex now to whenever any sort of new idea is proposed to say, well, but what about, what about the possible negative side effects? You know, what, what if this uh, you know, leads to some kind of problem? Um, and um, the, uh, that seemed like a good idea at the time, but um, I guess I, I started to uh, change my tune on this uh, because of the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil rig blowout in the Gulf of Mexico a couple of years ago, at which point I kind of said, you know, we've been talking about uh, developing new energy systems for most of the time that I've been alive. I mean, the, the, the OPEC uh, oil embargo was in, in 1973, and uh, I, I don't, it doesn't seem to be happening. And um, the, um, in, in consequence, we're stuck with uh, 
some old technologies uh, like petroleum or like the the old uh, reactors at Fukushima that nobody in their right mind would build and and implement today because um, because we can do better things today uh, and and so um, there there's been I think an unintended consequence of the public skepticism about science and technology which is that it's it's sort of got us frozen with exactly the kind of environmentally devastating uh, technologies um, that that we were reacting against uh, when this whole thing started. Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from on it, and it is a a failure I think of, if you will, public relations by the science and technology community, a kind of inability to explain that um, that it's it's not all bad, it's not all negative and, and dangerous. Okay. So you see fiction, science fiction as a way of sort of presenting uh, different ways of, uh, sort of different types of technology, different, different futures, if you like. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's the a case of if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, you know. Yeah. So, so yeah. my hammer is yes. writing science fiction. Yes. Uh, it, it may be perfectly useless, <laughs> it, uh, but it is what I yeah. know how to do. So I'm going to try that. <laughs> Is, is there a danger with sort of uh, both these uh, sort of views that you're, you're just going to be preaching to the converted, to the, the sort of people who are going to like reading this stuff, for the sort of people who already know a bit about science, who are already sort of possibly a bit more alert uh, to the sort of new technologies? Is, is, is there a way that we can sort of reach beyond that? Well, I, think, I think if you are a well-meaning science communicator and you want to big up science and cheerlead, Maybe, maybe you could have a museum exhibition and everyone who shows up at the exhibition is probably going to be interested in science anyway. And you could write a popular science book and those are read by a certain sort of people. But I think fiction is a great stealth way of getting these ideas in because you know, a museum might reach a thousand people a year and a popular science book might reach 50,000 people. But a blockbuster Hollywood film that's a, a rip-roaring good story that happens to have science in it can reach millions, and these may be the people who never thought they were interested in these ideas. So if you don't package it too heavily, as this is for science geeks, if it's just a maybe a mainstream Hollywood film, or a Hollywood film that's got a bit of geek appeal, or it's a bit it's a bit trendy, or, or a thriller, or or some sort of, or you can package it with crime, you know, make it a forensics blockbuster. I think people will come and see this and not even realize, oh, this maybe wasn't intended for me. Mm -hmm. It's intended for everyone. You know, a good story is for everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And is that, um, and related to that then, is there some danger around packaging uh, books or films as science fiction, as firmly placing them within a genre? Or should we try and sort of expand what that genre is or subvert that genre? <laughs> I think the, uh, it, it would be possible to write a, a book with a, a scientist protagonist that, that wasn't mm -hmm. science fiction. I mm -hmm. mean, um, that's uh, th those two things don't have to be coupled. I, I, I do think that people would tend to assume that, that they were, but uh, I think if you, if you sort of played your card rights, cards right um, and kind of marketed it in the right way, for lack of a more dignified term, um, <laughs> that um, the uh, that it should be possible to to write a mainstream a book, not, not perceived as a genre book, 
about a scientist. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's sort of, this is a bit of a stretch, but if you look at the, the Scott Brown books, the protagonist there is a, what, a professor of symbology or, or something like that. So it's not exactly lab science, but he's, he's a kind of academic who's got this kind of narrow specialty. Uh, and um, and then the, the, the plot kind of hinges uh, around that. So there's, there's plenty of examples. Mm -hmm. I always think of Ian Banks as a really great example, as a local example. Ian Banks writes two kinds of fiction. He writes literary fiction under the name Ian Banks, and he writes science fiction under the name Ian M. Banks. And I think that was a stroke of marketing genius. And I don't know whose idea it was, but I love that idea that you, you need a middle initial or lack of one to reach the right audience. So, I mean, that is acknowledging that there is a, a bit of a problem. Mm. People who read Ian M. Banks may not, wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole The Crow Road or another, a novel that he's written that has nothing to do with science. Yeah. I think that's interesting. And do you, do you think certain types of science lend themselves more readily to being discussed in, in fiction than other types? Um, so, sort of like human side science in a way, science that is more directly relevant to us as humans rather than, say, cosmology or... Uh, <clears throat> math. Yes, yes, <laughs> or maths. I mean, there have been some novels about maths, but I can think of one. <laughs> well, I think biology and med so the medical angle that biology is underpinned by biology is, is quite useful because people understand about diseases and care about them. So a novel that's about a biologist studying a disease can be more accessible than a novel about a physicist who's trying to understand string theory. But really, I think if you're a good writer, you can pull anything off, no matter how complicated. Look at Moby Dick. <laughs> the most complicated ever story about everything you ever didn't want to know about whaling, but was afraid <laughs> to ask in excruciating detail. And there was no problem there. It became a you know, very w well-loved book, even though it's really geeky, because it's all about whaling. And, and you know, yeah, I don't know if you've read it, but it's, it's remarkable. I don't know if you'd get away with that <laughs> today. Uh, I think a lot of editions are, are abridged, right? They, they, yeah. they, they specifically take out the geeky oh, no. material. It's a funny map. Yeah. Mm. And, it, and it sold really badly in his lifetime. Yeah. Yes. I think we, when you're working in the historical uh, environment, it gets a lot easier because uh, the, the science of, in the old days was um, more concrete, easier to understand. Um, in um, the Patrick O'Brien seafaring novels, the ship's surgeon is a is a, a sort of kind of Darwinian sort of uh, scientist who uh, is always taking samples, and, uh, and and that type of science I think is readily uh, understandable, and 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 there's all sorts of ways to make that into a good story. Whereas you have to work a little bit harder to do it with a string theorist or or something like that. Anything with lots of equipment uh, goes better if you've got a particle accelerator or at least Explosion. some pipettes, yeah. yeah any, anything that blows up, uh, you know. And so, Jennifer, you, you touched on this briefly um, about the importance of sticking to facts or reality, but uh, there's a lot of science fiction out there which obviously makes up the science. Uh, I mean, do, do you think that has a sort of role or, or function, or is it just is it just sort of purely fun? Is it? <clears throat> I think fiction should be made up, <laughs> and uh, the historical fiction is interesting because we have that's a very popular subset of lablet. There's lots of historical lablet novels out there, and it's very a little bit disturbing to some readers when they read a historical 
science fiction novel because they don't know where, what's true, what's known, and what's not known. And people get a little bit uneasy about that because you're reading about this character and, and he's having dialogue with his other scientists, contemporaries, and, and things are happening to him. He's you know, maybe getting some, having some sex with a woman. Or, you, know, you don't know if this stuff actually happened, and some people hate that. And there's a certain kind of person who really, really doesn't like that, and they should be reading biographies because they're, they're, they're not, they don't like surrendering to sort of the what if of what if Einstein had a sister who was just as clever as him. You know, there's all these interesting premises you can do with fiction that you can't do with biography or with a historical, a book of straight history. Uh, Neil, I mean, how did you find that when you were writing your historical books? Did you feel sort of uh, constrained to stick to the facts? Uh, how far well, in, did you deviate? Yeah, in, in, in my case, the, the facts were, were, were pretty interesting. I didn't, they're just telling the, the story for example, of what Robert Hooke did during the, the plague year uh, is, makes for a great story by itself. Um, the, uh, the, my, my basic dodge that I use, um, uh, I hope this doesn't shock people, uh, is, the, is that rather than sort of using the scientists themselves or the, the actual historical figures as point of view characters, I, I tend to uh, to create uh, imaginary people who are around them, uh, who, um, and then then we get to see Robert Hooke or Isaac Newton or Alan Turing through the eyes of that point of view character, and I do feel I can authoritatively sort of make things up uh, around that fictional character, um, and um, and sort of try to craft a story that way without. Um, having to do too much violence to, to the historical record. Mm -hmm. And, and do, do you think there's a, there's a role also for fiction, not just to examine the science itself, but to look at the, the, sort of in, the, the sort of moral and the social implications, to, to look at the implications, say, of, uh, sort of genetics uh, on, on society? Mm -hmm. yeah. I, think, I think that's where it excels, because yeah. if you write a story about a in a laboratory setting about it, somebody's experiments <laughs> and they spend three hours at a lab bench <laughs> transferring invisible amounts of liquid from one tube to another, it'd be really boring. Just like you don't show characters on television going to the toilet, it's, it's, you edit out all the boring stuff. You, and you need to have some sort of human story and often it's negative because negative things make better stories in some ways. But you can examine, uh, it's a really powerful tool for examining ethics and examining what if, what if we create this thing, what might happen? And I realize I could go too far, and it probably has gone too far. This dystopian, lapsing into the dystopian has skewed, in a way, our view of science. I think science is a lot less dangerous than people think, and technology is maybe a lot less dangerous than people think. Thinking of genetically modified organisms, I know as a scientist, I know exactly what goes into one, and, and if you eat it, there's absolutely no danger whatsoever to you, but people don't know that. And so if you wanted to maybe sway hearts and minds on GMO, you could write a novel about GMO that made these things clear in some sort of way that wasn't too pedantic or boring or scary. If you could sort of slip in these concepts and maybe try to persuade people. I mean, but you don't have to have an agenda. But I think it helps to have an underlying theme. And I think science fiction is good at that. Okay. <clears throat> 
Um, so I think we will uh, open up the floor to the audience. There is uh, <laughs> good. We've got some enthusiastic people ready. Uh, we've got a roving microphone. So can I ask you not to speak until you get hold of that microphone? And start off with the chap in the front. <laughs> Hello. Good afternoon. Um, you were talking about authors who use science to communicate, and a, a very interesting one was Michael Crichton, who we've now lost, although paradoxically in one of his last novels, State of Fear, he went on an, and he actually put an editorial comment at the end to say, global warming is all lies, which was quite bizarre. Um, and I was wondering how you would feel about that, but also um, you were talking about the portrayal of scientists and at the Science Festival, not this year, it was last year, it was a talk with Ian Banks, M, Ken McLeod and Charlie Stross, and I can't remember if it was Ian or Ken, because I can hear it in my head in a Scottish accent, so I knew it wasn't Charlie. One of them commented that it, it was a stroke of genius, Gene Roddenberry putting Mr. Spock, an actual science officer, on a ship. And he said that was a fantastic character, and in Britain, we had the equivalent was Bernard Quatermass, who was a scientist, doing science and research and being shown as a hero, defeating the aliens. Um, and I was wondering if you had any favorite characters. Um, I know you mentioned Ripley in, in some remarks as a, a typical science fiction heroine who asks intelligent questions and acts upon those answers. Um, which for some reason Ridley Scott kind of let us down with Prometheus when the scientists have panic attacks and do stupid things. But, but you know, uh, uh, there's, there's a, a way in which... I was actually going to mention the scientists in Prometheus because, the, the, well, no, no, I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're kind of... They're everything that you said, but uh, in, in a certain sense, that's an advance over Spock. Right. I mean, I mean, nothing against Spock. Uh, he's. Uh, uh, it, it was a, a brilliant idea to have a Spock in that show. Um, what 40, 50 years ago now. Um, but um, uh, if if we if we were still dealing with Spocks, I think it would mean that we hadn't so sort of, uh, we hadn't ad advanced. Um, and uh, the, uh, some of the movies, uh, we were talking earlier in the, the tent about uh, James Cameron's uh, depiction of scientists in uh, Avatar and The Abyss and some of his other movies. Uh, they're much more human. And I think in Prometheus, we've <laughs> kind of made, made them almost more human than we want to be. Uh, b because the scientists there are almost unrecognizable. Uh, it takes you a while to realize uh, if you're talking about the, what are their names? There's the one with all the tattoos, who's very, uh, yeah, uh, and then the other one. Uh, they're very blue collar, you, you know, and, and I actually kind of liked uh, seeing them, even though they, they ended up being weak uh, characters doomed to, uh, to suffer the timeless fate of, of, of such characters in... <laughs> The red shirt, maybe. The red shirt, yeah, yeah. I, 
Just a word about Michael Crichton. I love Michael Crichton, and I thought Jurassic Park was lablet. It was a little bit far-fetched, but they are cloning things from pieces of amber, and, and maybe that could happen. But I thought State of Fear was, it was an appalling book, but I would defend to the death his right to write a fictional work of propaganda, because he's the author. He can make up whatever he wants. And if he wants to make up the fact that climate change is not happening and, and use it in this, and back it up with all these figures, that's his right as an author. And I mean, it's disappointing, but that's what fiction is. It's made up. As far as favorite characters, I have to say, Will Smith in I Am Legend. This, he's the most amazing character, because he's a scientist. He's a good guy. He's flawed, but he does. In, in the face of all these zombie monster attack, or whatever they are, he's doing serious science in his basement. He looks really good in a white coat, really sexy. And he's doing, he's doing animal trials on the zombie rats, and then when he finds a compound that works, he, and he documents it all in his little notebook, and, and he tests it, phase one clinical trials on the, the human zombie things. It's exactly perfect, correct procedure for testing a new drug. I thought it was great. And of course, obviously, it wasn't real science, and it was a bit silly, but I thought he was a great character. Because the other scientist in that film, Emma Thompson, who played, she was a scientist, who, the well-meaning scientist who lost control of her creation, which is the ultimate meme, right? She invented this virus that was supposed to cure cancer and ended up destroying the world. I mean, that's a classic ancient meme. So it was good to have you know, a homage to that kind of character, and then come up with this Will Smith character who was really quite modern and a good guy. Hi, I was just thinking about um, the popularity of popular science books and there are scientists writing so well about their own work. Why do we need science fiction by authors who maybe might not know so much? <laughs> um, what, can you give an example of, of the, some of the... I was thinking of Steven Pinker's um, books on the mind that mm -hmm. I think are really good. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's there's room for for both. Um, there's uh, 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 there there has been a, a, a kind of, of explosion of, uh, of of really good uh, science books by by scientists um, you know, during the last few decades, um, and um, uh, in, 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 there's a, a, a sense in which. Uh, as a science fiction writer, you can almost feel like you're being left left behind a, a little bit uh, by by the quality of some of those books. Um, the uh, uh, the the strength of, of science fiction is obviously that the fiction part, the ability to include um, uh, a yarn, a ripping yarn, some good characters, um, and and sort of uh, tell the you know, reveal the science a little bit through the use of, of, of narrative. So they, they don't need to, to conflict with each other, uh, I don't think. Yeah. I think you can reach a, a bigger audience with a work of fiction than you can with a popular science book. Um. Yeah, and I, th I think there's still space to ask the what-if question. Um, uh, I mean, a, a, lot of, a lot of popular science sells hugely. I'm just thinking of The Selfish Gene, which I reread recently, which is a fantastically, beautifully written book. Uh, but there's, there's still space for your imagination as a fiction writer and a fiction reader to go spiralling off into different places. Okay, so there's questions around here. So there's a chap here. <coughs> 
So while the microphone's moving, I'll say that David Deutsch's book, um, The Fabric of Reality, was very useful, and, and some other such books were very useful for me when I was writing Anathem, which is completely a science fiction book. But in a lot of ways, those those books can sort of pose questions that that they aren't at liberty to answer. A scientist can only go so far uh, w without sort of overstepping the bounds of what's proper to put in a, a factual book. But but they they can pose scenarios that are just you know, kind of red meat for, for science fiction writers. Hey, um, thank you both very much. Um, one thing that you sort of skirted around a little bit but haven't addressed directly is politics because certain, certainly um, science and technology exist and develop within a political context. I mean, Deepwater Horizon existed within a political context or development of the atomic bomb or the development of new energy sources, et cetera. All, all exist in a political context. Um, State of Fear had a political message behind it. You know, maybe not something that a lot of us like, but 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 the politics was there. So I'm wondering whether you can talk a little bit about the role you think discussing politics should play in science fiction when you're talking about science as as sort of a realistic endeavor. I think Kim Stanley Robinson had some politics in his. Um, his most recent trilogy, what is 40 Signs of Rain, um, it was set in the National Science Foundation and there was a lot of really interesting geeky stuff about how the NSF works and funds things and I, I don't know if that was what you're talking about but I, if you look at it the other way, I, th I like to think that politicians are human, <laughs> I am, I'm not really sure, <laughs> but when they go home at night they probably watch telly and they probably read and Maybe that's the best way to reach a politician is, is, is by touching them in their, their entertainment sort of mode when they're sort of off guard and they're watching a great flick and then they think, wow, maybe, maybe this or maybe that. I don't know if they would bring that back to the office with them the next day, but I, I don't know how you could influence politics with science fiction. I, I don't know any good examples of science fiction that really goes there, except for yeah, that. I'm, I'm trying to. I mean, there's, there's plenty of examples of science fiction in which the, the politicians are are villains or maybe not even rising to the level of villains they're just kind of vermin uh, <laughs> and that just kind of reflects a, a certain attitude I think that's pretty common among tech people uh, the, 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 the politicians as being just uh, ignor ignoramuses who, who are always getting in the way uh, so um, there's kind of a block there I, I think of just uh, not wanting to even come to grips uh, with, with the, the political side, or if you do, so uh, approaching it in a, as a sort of caricature of the, the venal, dumb uh, politician. Um, hmm. it's, uh, it's a good question, um, <clears throat> and, um, and uh, trying to uh, Trying to write a, a book that's simultaneously good science and, and a good political novel would be a, a pretty interesting challenge just because um, the day-to-day the -day workings of what politicians do are sort of hard to make interesting, right? I mean, some people might say the same thing about, about science, but uh, 
Um, I guess one example is Intuition by Allegra Goodman, which deals with the immediate politics of science funding yeah. and how that rubs up against sort of wider politics. So there is some of it in there, but yeah, I agree. It's not, not written about enough. Sorry, so we had a question there. <laughs> I think there are a couple of potential problems. One is that writing about science is not the same as writing about a scientist. And there are some very famous scientists who've done wonderful work who are actually horrible individuals. I think that the real bottom line is you have to have a good story. Because it's not, I mean, there are crates of old science fiction novels that are terrible because they ha you're going along reading an excellent story and then suddenly there are five pages of a diatribe of what the author thinks about some philosophical question. Ken McLeod actually touches on that in some of his books. So you've got to make the story illustrate the point you're trying to make. One example I thought of was, you know, there's an American TV show, House, which um, was very popular, but you could pretty accurately say that the depiction of medicine there is just about totally false in terms of whatever actually happens in a medical institution or what physicians actually do. And I don't, I don't know, thinking about that show, whether that made people like or dislike physicians. So I, I think you need a story, is the bottom line. I'm married to a physician who, uh, very good-natured person, but uh, House uh, reliably makes her blow her stack. Uh, <laughs> and and, and it's the, there's a number of reasons, but, but the, the one that really seems to be uh, particularly annoying is the idea that you would ever have half a dozen fully qualified physicians all well, sitting around yeah. a table uh, working on one case uh, at, at the same time. Uh, apparently that doesn't happen very often uh, in, in the real world. Um, yeah, well, you, you always need a good story, that's for sure. And um, the uh, and, and stories that are interrupted by by diatribes uh, uh, don't fit that bill, and that's probably why they're moldering away in those those boxes uh, that, that you mentioned. Um, it is uh, uh, difficult to, uh, to to sustain interest in, in you know, with with when when you're being kind of hit over the head by exposition. And I think that science fiction has become somewhat more sophisticated in general over the years about finding. Uh, clever ways of getting that expository material into the story without just dropping a carton of three by five cards uh, on, on the reader's head. Yeah. That's right. I, Jennifer, have you found that in your own work? Um, sort of techniques for smuggling in. Uh. There's, there's always you know, there's the classic ignorant sidekick. You know, you could have you can have a character who's not a scientist, but those aren't as interesting to me as scientist characters who are in a different field. So you've got, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson does this very well. You have a scientist who works on, say, biology, chatting to a physicist, and they're both very intelligent, geeky people, but they don't speak the same language. So you can sort of have them have a conversation about what they're doing without saying, I'm just working on this gene, which is, as you know, a long piece of DNA. <laughs> you know, it was like, people don't talk like that. So in this sort of informative dialogue. So there's, there's little tricks, you know, you can maybe have somebody give a lecture, but that's getting a bit boring. 
as a, as a strategy. There are little strategies. But the bottom line is you can't have too much detail, too much detail that's interfering with the pace. So you have to have, things have to go along in a clip. And, and if you've got too much, I mean, the best thing to do is give your manuscript to a non-scientist <laughs> and ask them to, to start making marks in the margins when they're starting to, you know, they're hanging on by a thread. And OK, I'm still here, but I'm just about, oh, I've fallen off. <laughs> and then you can go back to your text and you can dumb it down a little bit, not, not in a disgusting and patronizing way, but just to you know, take out a few details, maybe leave in a few for color, and, and keep the main gist and keep the pace going. I mean, there's all sorts of strategies. And you have to find your own way, I think. So there's a question here. Uh, good afternoon. Um, having come from America, where uh, the level of disapproval of science, and in particular environmental science, is just horrifying, um, I, I feel like it's actually part of a larger cultural problem um, which at least in America I found to be a profound distrust of intellectuals and this is deeply politically rooted. And I don't know how you approach this, how you um, do the work you want to do for science without addressing the entire problem of anti-intellectualism. Um, and is there a strategy for that? I mean, in a sense, the smarter a writer you are, the more trapped you are into this conundrum, because then, scientist or not, you're still just a damn intellectual. <laughs> so this, how do you approach that? <laughs> this is part of, of why I was interested by the kind of unconventional scientists in, in Prometheus, and in that uh, if, if, if you are that kind of, of, uh, of person who, uh, who, who dislikes scientists as being members of an elite, then um, then you're you're not going to take a very a very warm view of Mr. Spock, right? Um, having Mr. Spock solve all your problems for you is is probably right out. Um, but uh, if 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 scientists can be portrayed in a somewhat more human sort of blue collar uh, style as people with sort of <coughs> normal uh, quirks and, and human characteristics who are just doing a particular job. Then I, I I think it helps to sort of get because a lot of the the disdain of elites is really just a a rhetorical device. Uh, it's just a rhetorical tick that the, that these kinds of people use. Uh, whenever you hear the word elite or sort of associated words like smug, smug is my my favorite. Uh, you you just immediately they're just hate words, right? You immediately hate elites, uh, especially smug elites. Uh, and, and so, uh, and the only the only antidote for that, I, I think, is just to show uh, science and scientists who are not that way. Uh, right, let's tackle someone in the middle. Uh, that lady. <clears throat> Hello. Hi. Um, so you both talked a lot about um, science fiction being able to influence scientists, but what about the next generation? What about students? Do you think students could learn a lot from science fiction? Because I know personally, I'm a cognitive science student, and I was inspired a lot by Snow Crash. And I was wondering whether you think you should aim to get students involved in that way, or whether that should just be a happy consequence. I, I would vote for happy consequences over aims. 
<laughs> there is one, there, I can't remember the title, but there, I've just discovered a work of Lablet's t aimed at young adults. I can't remember the title. It was the first one I've ever found. It's qu quite lovely, actually. But no, I mean, I think a student is intelligent enough to read adult fiction, and, and if it's an engaging, great story with great characters, you can't really lose. I mean, Snow Crash was, was inspirational to me as well. And I, I wasn't looking to be educated. I just got past this book, and I read it, and I really liked it, and it did inspire me. But I think it's, it's interesting, because anecdotally, and I know a lot of scientists have been inspired by reading science fiction when they were kids and when they were young, although that wasn't a specific aim of, of the work. So it clearly does have that function as a sort of secondary function. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think there was another question nearby. Okay. I'm just interested to know, uh, in talking about House and shows like that, how do you feel that the Big Bang Theory portrays scientists? Because it's kind of on a com comedic side. It's certainly a very geeky side. But do you think that's positive, or do you think that's a negative view of scientists? I haven't seen it, so it's, no. It's okay. real. It's a bunch of nerds. Yeah. No, I've heard I, about it a lot. <laughs> I, I love that. I love it. I mean, I've seen. It. I haven't seen all of them, but I was. I laughed. And I think you have to be, I'm worried that some people aren't smart enough to realize that they're sending up the stereotypes. And if there's anyone literal out, literal out there who thinks that people really like that, we're in trouble. I'm hoping that most people realize it's, it's, it's a joke. <laughs> and in, I think that it's, it's good. I think it's a good, anything that gets people, like CSI is another example, this crime scene investigation. Okay, you may not like it, but it's done wonders for the images of science and, and forensic science in particular. I think a lot of students are going into it now and disappointed to find out <laughs> that their colleagues aren't all gorgeous and they can't get their results in five minutes. Uh, I, yeah, I think anything that shows scientists, I and mean, we never see them. They're, they're almost invisible from our screens and from our pages, and I'm really happy with any scientist that I see on screen, even if it was really not very good, I'm pleased. <laughs> right, so let's, let's go back over there. Hi. Jennifer, um, you mentioned GMO at one point. Would you agree that um, with the hefty commercial interests that are involved with a lot of science and technology, there's still a big need for fiction that's critical and cynical and dystopian? Yeah, it's a, ba it's a balance. So on this particular issue, I, I guess I'm biased because I don't believe it's dangerous. But I think it's great if society wants to debate it intelligently using the facts and if fiction can mediate that I think it's great but if I have a feeling that in that particular debate and in many debates you just can't meet the other side there's too much disbelief and and maybe there's some smugness I mean nobody likes a smarty pants and some scientists are a bit smug really I have to admit not all of them but some of them and so those tend to end up in the media so the people you see on telly might be a bit smugger than smugger more smug <laughs> than your average scientist? I don't know. I, I think it's good for debate, but we don't want to go so far that every single science fiction piece is just a negative advertisement for science. Because it, it, it's, it's just not black and white like that. We need to see both sides. Okay, and I'll take a question behind. Hi, um, do you think part, part of the um, fear of people, non-scientists is the kind of secrecy, the mysticism, the way that we've always sort of had copyrights and very kept, kept our data very close to our, our bodies, where, and, and the future is open access publishing. And do you think that might completely change the way that people see the process of science? 
Yeah, this is this is a pretty hot topic right now, right? Because the, the, at least in, in the States and maybe here as well, um, there's a, a, a sort of growing body of opinion that says, hey, wait a second, our tax dollars are paying for all this research. Why can't we just read it? Why do we have to get these expensive, uh, these expensive uh, journal subscriptions in order to get access to what is basically our data? Um, so uh, that feels like something that's getting ready to change. Um, I don't know how big of an effect it'll have and that a lot of this kind of literature is still pretty hard to read even if it's out in plain sight and freely available it may it may be a, a kind of difficult to to follow unless you're sort of up to speed on that particular uh, area I think you're right I think I mean I can't read a physics paper it's been published in nature I'm a scientist I've been a scientist for 25 years but I can't even read the title and understand it so I do worry that all this literature will get out there and people won't, still won't make head nor tails of it. So I think it's important. Um, our sponsor, the Wellcome Trust, has really given lots of money towards getting people like me and other scientists out there to talk to people about science, about what they do, in a sort of understandable way. Science communication, I don't know about in America, but in, in, in the UK there's a lot of money devoted to it. And I think it is doing good things. And I think you can read all the papers you want, but if you're not trained to understand it, it might be quite difficult. But openness is a good thing. I totally agree with that. But we're going to need to have also people digesting all this material that's out there in a way that normal normal people, I can't believe I just said that, <laughs> non-scientists can understand, non-specialists. Clump of questions at the back here. Start with a gentleman in the back row. What aspects of science would you use or do you use to bring very young people, kids, into the field? I'm thinking of my generation. 60 years ago, we were thrilled with Dan Dare and the Lost Planet books and the Kemlo books. And from there, we graduated to Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov and Doc Smith and the like. Now, all this was great, but this is the interest of this is just historical now. The scientific world, the social world, the political world have changed so much. Is it still possible to write in a vein like this for children of eight and nine and ten? And if so, what what do you write about? What could you write about that would have the same effect on this generation? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question because you know we had space, and, and space was a great adventure, and uh, uh, and um, it had a sort of built-in uh, lattice of uh, accomplishments that. Uh, you know, we would start with rockets and then go to suborbital and an orbital launch and then we would go to the moon and we would have space stations and then we'd go to Mars and so you could kind of tell where you were uh, in that program at any given point uh, and everything was sort of big and obvious and, and visually realized uh, and see, in, in a way uh, I, I think we're still looking for you know, what's going to be the next space and maybe it's just more space. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we do space in a different way. But, but it's hard to find uh, areas of technological development that are as charismatic and as easily understood uh, with as much cool hardware as, as space. Uh, I, I think, as strange as it might sound, that the, the answer might be infrastructure, uh, big infrastructure uh, of a sort that is... Um, that we've kind of haven't been building, uh, and that we now need. Um, so, uh, 
That could mean a lot of different things like high-speed rail tunnels or, uh, or, or, or new kinds of, of bridges or, or power generating uh, systems. Um, I'm writing a story about building a, a tall tower, um, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, if you can make that, if you can find a way to make that interesting, then you're on to something. Maybe we should, we're going to expect a big explosion of CERN lit, sort of <laughs> pig's boson. The other interesting area that's really the last frontier in biology is probably consciousness. And again, I don't know how you write a good novel about this for named to kids. But you got good kids, you got MRI scanners, and I mean, I, I don't know. It's, you're right, it's, there's just no low-hanging fruit left. But I'm sure writers are really creative and they'll come up with something, because they always do. <laughs> Um, I think we've got time for one very quick uh, question. Uh, who, one, one last question. Who? Sorry. Uh, I think. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Did you have have your hand up? When I was a student, I read a piece called Olivia Liked Chloe, and it basically blew my mind because it was about women in the workplace getting on, and. How do you feel that lablet, as you call it, and feminism can advance each other's causes, et cetera? Well, there's, a, there's lots of great lablet with female scientists as central characters. I think, you know, you think of Jodie Foster in Contact. I mean, what a great role model for anyone who wanted to be working in space as a female. And it, it can address all the problems that women tend to have. I'm writing now a novel about a feminist scientist who's trapped in a sexist institution, and it's quite fun to write because we do have problems as women in science. There aren't very many of us. We have particular problems. There are, there are still biases against women. People think they're not scientific enough or they're not, they can't do maths. <laughs> they have to have pink pipettes. <laughs> I, think it, I think that fiction can do a lot for feminism. And Lablet, if you have a great female scientist character, it's a really strong character. I think it can, it can do some damage. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I will, uh, I will grab that opportunity to, uh, to uh, wrap up and uh, thank you all very much for a really interesting and fun conversation and can I ask you to thank our speakers. Thank you. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.